Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. I'm Karen Stiller, and on the day I interviewed Randy Boyagoda, I made a lemon meringue pie that did not work out while listening to Dante's Inferno being read out loud on YouTube. Maybe that's why my pie failed. But I wanted to try to understand better some of the themes in his latest novel, Dante's Indiana, and it did help me. Randy is an English professor at the University of Toronto, an essayist, a book critic, a kind one, I think, and a novelist. Both of Randy's recent novels, Dante's Indiana and Original Prim, are about family and faith, and they're both funny. They are smiling, thinking novels. So let's go. Randy, for our listeners who don't know you uh, so well, give us a snapshot of your work and vocational life. Sure. My name is Randy Boyagoda, and I am a husband, father, and professor of English at the University of Toronto, where I also serve as vice dean undergraduate. And um, at the same time, I pursue a career and vocation as a novelist and as an essayist and book critic. So I have noticed this about you, Randy, as I did my background research. You almost always introduce yourself first as a husband and a father. And I really like that. I think to myself that, you know, our identities begin and end, I think, with our vocations. And I have discerned that my vocation is not to the religious life or the single life, but to family life. So everything else I do is ordered by and to my responsibilities and my sense of self as a husband and father, including, and I think this is important, including my work as a writer. You have written about your family during COVID in particular. I read a couple of columns where you talk about worshiping online with your four girls and your wife, and even a a beautiful piece where you talk about washing your daughter's feet, which I assume was during Monday, Thursday, maybe. And I found it really touching. And I wondered if you could speak to the power of sharing those very personal, specific, but also universal stories and just how they, how we can help each other by, I guess, being that transparent and vulnerable. So I would say that a large part of my understanding of vocation has to do with answering the following question. What am I called to do with the gifts I have been granted in the time and place in which I find myself. And I would say, objectively, that while I could certainly pursue a successful career as a scholar of modern American literature, and I certainly teach in that area and uh, pursued scholarship in that area, I would say that I have discerned that I have a particular capacity to write publicly available stories and essays that try to make sense of faith and family life. And I really mean it when I say publicly available. It's a phrase that I learned from Father Richard John Newhouse, the founder of First Things Magazine, whose biography I wrote a few years ago. You know, Newhouse was very interested in what it would mean for a religiously committed believer to be able to contribute out of the fullness of their person and their beliefs in a a pluralist public life. So what that means, I think, Karen, 
is being able to make arguments that are available independent of your confessional commitment. In other words, if I'm going to tell you something about family life, about worshiping online, about living with children during the pandemic, and if my uh, my commitments as a practicing Catholic are an important function and feature of that case, I should have the right to draw on those commitments in what I'm writing, but at the same time, I have the responsibility to convey them in a way that is available to persons of all goodwill rather than those of my own confession. And I see that as something that I have a capacity to do and that I think in turn I'm called to do. So I love that term about a public purpose and a public vocation to your writing. And when I think about that, I think about some of the Christian writers specifically that I know and I've worked with sometimes in the past. And I think it's a mistake they make where they start to write what I would call on mission. They have, Mm. they're trying to convince, they're trying to convert probably actually. So could you speak to that about the difference between those things? Yes, absolutely. I can remember a few years ago, uh, while I was working on my first novel, Original Print, I was in Chicago, uh, at Loyola University, Chicago. It was a kind of day-long kind of mini-conference on my fiction. It involved a series of professors responding to my work, and then eventually this led to a larger conversation about what it would mean to write religiously serious, religiously committed stories for contemporary audiences, sacred or secular. I started talking a little bit about uh, my 2018 novel, Original Prim, uh, which is very much about faith and family life, as you know, in rather unexpected ways, but about faith and family life. What I could only describe as a kind of fired up, confidently evangelical graduate student raised his hand and basically took me to task for not writing on mission. He, he, he was basically saying, you've got this platform because you, you, know, you have this kind of public secular profile to really make a case for traditional marriage. Oh. Why don't you do that? And my response to him was, well, would you read a novel called Traditional Marriage, colon, a novel? Of course he wouldn't, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because if I set out with such a finally ideological claim, pretending to be a theological claim, it would make for bad art. And I, I am fully convinced that what we are asked to do as religious, religiously attuned artists is not undermine the nature of what we, of the gift we've been granted by putting it to this worldly ideological purposes. In other words, I'm called to be a novelist. I'm not called to be a Catholic or a Christian novelist. But in order to be a novelist, I draw on who I am as a Catholic and a Christian. So are you then walking a line where like people like that student at that event maybe thought you weren't religious enough in your writing, and maybe other people think you're too religious in your writing? Does that happen? It's funny you say that. I've had the exact opposite experience, both with the original print and now with my new novel, Dante's Indiana, where I have had Catholic and Christian readers worry almost on my behalf that it's a little too much. You know, I had a a conversation with 
one reader who said that she wanted to invite me to her book club, but she didn't because she wanted to talk to me about all the different kinds of weird little Catholic in-jokes that are in my novels. And her book club, you know, she's the only Catholic in it. And she, would worry, she was worried they wouldn't get it. Oh, interesting. Right? Alternatively, both my editor, an 80-year-old atheist, and one of my uh, closest friends and readers in the United States, a non-believing secular Jewish literary critic, both want me to be as Catholic as possible in my fiction because they think that's where there is something real and substantive and distinct and different at the level of theology and lived experience rather than apology, right? I think that's the key. As long as I can stay on the artful side of an engagement with the faith, then uh, I'm being encouraged by unexpected people and places to, to be all the more religious in my work. Yeah, wow, that is really interesting. And I have to say that the thought of having an 80-year-old atheist editor, I think is pretty awesome. I can see how that would be really good. Well, let me tell you. Yeah, well, Karen, you know, what he told me about original print after I finished, you know, kind of the, the major version of it was he said, I remember this so distinctly, he said, Randy, my problem with your novel is it's not theologically serious enough. It's full of smells and bells and opinions about Pope Francis. But that's not a religious novel, right? That's, a, that's either a cultural novel or a polemical novel. He said what matters to him with both original print and now Dante's Indiana, and I work with him on that too, now you know, in his kind of mid-80s. What he said was that the reader needs to believe that Prin believes in God. Yeah. Because if the reader doesn't believe that, the novel isn't working. Mm -hmm. Whether, regardless of what the reader believes themselves. And I think you did, well, you did that. Clearly you did that. And Prin's relationship with God is, you know, complicated and he's searching and he asks all the tough, good questions. And Andy has beautiful moments of epiphany and, you know, reconciliation and comfort, I think. Mm -hmm. um, satire is a sharp weapon in your hands. Tell us about how satire works, I get in your work, but also, you know, in, in religious literature in general, maybe. You know, to go back to maybe the, uh, an earlier theme of this conversation, you know, if you've discerned your call to be a, a writer as part of your overall identity as a husband and father, then in knowing that you are a writer, in turn, you need to figure out, well, what kind of writer are you? I am never writing a Marilyn Robinson-like story. It's not my sensibility. Yeah. Right? <laughs> By nature, I am perhaps a, a comic writer who's interested in, to some degree, provoking you to reimagine what you take for granted, and to some other degree, to identify meaningful human experience in mundane places like family life, frankly, you know, kind of in our, in our era. And so with my new novel, Dante's Indiana, it's the story, as you know, of a group of people who decide to build a Dante theme park in an opioid-ravaged small town in the middle of America. And Prin, this continuing kind of protagonist and, and cracked autobiographical stand-in for me, agrees, because his own life is kind of at loose ends with respect to faith, family, uh, and work, 
agrees to move to Terre Haute, Indiana to help an evangelical millionaire and the people he works with build this Dante theme park. Now, importantly, as I'm sure you realize, Karen, there's Paradiso and there's Inferno, but there's no purgatory. <laughs> and that's partly because there's only two basketball arenas in town to convert to theme parks. Okay. And partly it's because of the difference between Catholics and other Christians when it comes to that key yeah. question of the time beyond this life before heaven. And so the challenge and interest for me in a situation like this would be for you to be moved in an absurd situation. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can write crazy, funny, provocative, absurd things. And I certainly have received recognition and good reviews for doing so. But what I discern is my real calling, actually, is to do everything I just described, but then also reveal the human person in all of this. And that often has to do with family relationships and relationships between people and God. And so it's that balance of the absurd and the affecting that I think uh, best describes what I try to do with satire in my fiction. Let's talk about Christian fiction in general. Um, Mm -hmm. You've talked about uh, the HBO novel, and I think... Mm -hmm. uh, Obviously, you're referring to, you know, big stories, beach reads almost, I'm guessing, maybe a little deeper than that. Beach, beach reads for smart people. Yeah, beach reads and for smart cool people. For That's reading good. It. <laughs> but the key for me, the key with HBO fiction, that, just to explain the term for our listeners, you never read it twice. Right. Because it doesn't need to be read twice. Yeah. But while you're reading it, you feel smart, you feel cool, and you feel a little bit congratulated by the, oh, I get that reference. I get that reference. But frankly, I might as well just watch HBO and then read literature instead. So that's yes. what I mean by HBO fiction. Okay. And you can buy them at airport bookstores, I would say. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Christian fiction, I mean, there's a huge publishing industry in the States, obviously, more than here. Um, I mean, I think we have Christian HBO novels, too, which I'm sure you've seen. Yeah, right. Sure. I guess I would love for you to speak to how writers and readers can do better with what we produce and also what we expect and and what we read when it tem- when it comes to religious literature. I mean, you're sure. creating a new way of doing it, I think, in a way. Well, thank you. I guess I would just say a couple of things. In the intelligence industry, one of the great mistakes you make is what's called mirroring. So when you're trying to deal, let's say, with the enemy or with a spy on the other side, you presume, or a suspect, you think, well, what would I do if I were that person? You mirror and then you make a mistake because probably that person isn't doing the same thing. Uh, professors do the same thing with, with students. Well, don't you want to be a professor like me? I can't imagine any other job you would want except maybe law, but nothing else. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I say that to suggest this is what I'm called to do as a writer. And if, and that's it's very generous of you to say so, if my doing so creates a space or a condition for other writers to tell stories that maybe they didn't think were possible. That is really gratifying. As for your other question, I'm probably less critical now than I would have been earlier about that kind of the industry approach to Christian fiction. I think it has a place. I think the very fact that we have people writing works for different purposes is fine. You and I both read books for different reasons, right? I'm my spiritual readings satisfy something different or serves a different function in my life than whatever novel I'm reading right now. Um, 
but I think that for me, it's more the, the living versus the dead, to be honest. I can think of a, a good friend I know. He's a gold mining executive here in Toronto. And I remember him once going back and forth with me about some books that he should read. And I gave him a group of names of religiously serious contemporary writers. And he just said, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, hmm. Chesterton, Dostoevsky. Why don't I, Flannery O'Connor. Right. Why don't I just keep reading those? Because they're reliable, right? Because I already know what to get from them. I don't have time as a busy guy with a family to be trying out some new, you know, kind of unknown voice in hopes that it'll satisfy some part of my religious imagination. And my argument back to him and to our readers is, if you don't read us, if you don't read religiously serious literary fiction, then publishers will say, well, look, there is no market for this, which means it's a self-fulfilling doomed prophecy. Oh, then we shouldn't publish more of it, in fact. And that for me is always the great danger. I always say to any student, any writer, any reader, you should always be reading the living and the dead and if you are a religiously serious person, you should read religiously serious living writers and participate in the effort of creating a canon instead of waiting for it to show up on your doorstep like, a, like another C.S. Lewis novel. Yeah, it was my son, Eric, whom you know, who told me, used the term that for me, literary citizen, which I actually hadn't heard before. Yeah. And I loved that. And for me, that, that tr has translated into buy the book. Just buy the book. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I had a book release in May 2020, a spiritual memoir, memoir. about yeah yes, about being yes. a minister's wife. Just before the pandemic hit, I had the chance to record it, the audio version, in Chicago at the publishers. And as they were touring me through the building, they said, this is the wing that the Left Behind books built, you know, <laughs> the whole wing of the publisher. And it was really interesting to me. And I thought, I mean, not to, you know, criticize, but there is that incredibly popular, rapid selling type of reading that sure. is maybe more entertaining than edifying. And those tend to be the books that sell. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can live with that as long as nobody makes the category error of thinking that those left behind books are literature. They're not. And yeah. I don't. I don't think they were intended to be. Um, who was it that died recently? Is his name Dean Kuntz or someone like this? One of these, maybe not him. He's from South Africa. One of these writers who publishes, you know, an eight hundred page swashbuckler every other oh, South African um, every other day. S Smith. Uh, Wilbur yeah. Smith. Wilbur Smith. Yeah. And I, I read his obituary, and Wilbur Smith uh, was asked to respond to criticism that he didn't write serious literature. And his response was, I don't write serious literature. Why do people, like, that's not what yeah, I'm doing I'm here. I'm not don't trying to do that. To do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, um, even as a book critic, I would say maybe the most important responsibility I have as a book critic is to not do that terrible thing that book reviewers often do, which is to say, partway through, you realize that the substance of their critique is, this is the book I would have written, or this is the book I want. Yeah. And you fail because you didn't satisfy either mm. what I wanted or what I would have done if I were you. And it seems to me like your, your real responsibility to a book is to ask, well, what is this book trying to do? And then assess it on those terms and then continue. So, you know, I'll give you maybe the, a good juxtaposition in movie terms. Marvel movies are terrible when they try to be anything 
other than big, witty spectacles. When Marvel movies try for more than that, they're pretty unwatchable, I find. So, too, you know, my wife and children and I, we recently watched Minari. Do you know that movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. Lovely. Minari is, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful recent movie about Christian Korean family life in the American South. What I love about that movie is its modesty. It's a small story. It's not pretending to be anything else. No aliens show up. Nothing supernatural happens in the barn. This is what it is, and it does it beautifully. And so whether you are a reader, a writer, or a viewer, you know, kind of asking that initial question, what is this work? What is it wanting to be? Well, I owe it to this work to grant its premise and then assess it, enjoy it or not, based on that. Yeah, I love that. And just that reminder that it is our ordinary stories normally that connect, you know, the deepest with people. That's what we share, our our yes. ordinary figuring out of life. And uh, that is so beautiful. I was going to just say, I was really surprised that for all the kind of whiz-bang stuff that happens in Dante's Indiana, in the kind of big, bold uh, satire and events, what I've noticed from readers are that the the two moments that that people seem to kind of really respond to are early on at one point, Prin points out that his wife, Molly, left Toronto for Milwaukee to stay with her in-laws for the summer. She took their winter clothes. Mm, and yes. that, that, that line does a lot. Yeah. And then later on, there's a moment where one of Prin's daughters is at a funeral and she's swinging her legs. And... She sees that her father's watching her, and her father's watching her with delight, but she gets worried that she's going to be in trouble because she's not behaving properly at a funeral. Right. He can't clarify because they're at a funeral. But the, the, the kind of the fullness of human experience that happens there, I think, from what readers are telling me, feels real to them. You know, as much as, oh, wow, look, look at how well he's imagined this Dante theme park and the different rides. But that's a different kind of reality that we're getting at with those moments between people. Yeah. And I think when his father dies, mm -hmm. I found that quite beautiful. He's alone oh, in you. Florence. He's dealing with this desolation. He, There's a moment he leaves his phone behind that mm -hmm. jumped out at me as true. So I yeah. really love that. My first question, <laughs> which I had written down, which now is going to be one of the last, I think some of us have this idea that it would be a very hard time to be a religious professor in a at mm -hmm. a you know secular university campus today, and I wondered if you could, mm. you know, either debunk that or or tell us what is it like to be a Catholic intellectual writer and professor in today's university culture. I would say that it is far more congenial than some might expect, depending on your style and sensibility. I would say that at base we are called to be generous to each other and to treat each other as persons made in the image and likeness of God. If you can apply that logic, that, that sense of caritas to the persons around you, independent of their belief systems or what they think and even say about your belief systems, then you're doing a lot of work just like that. I think in subtler ways, every Wednesday, every Ash Wednesday, I have a spiritual crisis. Do I go and get my ashes first thing in the morning and bear witness all day? 
or do I go right at the end of work so nobody has to see? And, I, and I'm bald, so it's just like a giant target for a priest, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a logic to both of those. I, I don't, I don't place one above the other. It depends really on the season you're in, kind of spiritually almost. Um, so what I guess what I'm getting at is I think I have found a way in my teaching, and in my research, my writing, and in my uh, administrative life to draw on my faith in ways, to go back to an earlier conversation, part of our conversation, that are publicly available and for the greater good. And I think because of that, because I'm willing to see my Catholicism as a source of positive goods for the people around me, not something I need to protect or defend, Mm -hmm. uh, I think people respond to that very, very positively. Yeah, that is so good to hear. And I've had the exact same ash ashy cross dilemma mm-hmm. before. And and I think the question I ask myself, which I'm I think is what you're asking yourself, is is it helping or hurting for me to have this cross yeah. on my forehead all day long? And sometimes it helps and sometimes it's probably just weird. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you mentioned that you gave to a friend of yours a short list of contemporary writers of religious literature that your friend mm-hmm. should read. Can you are you in a position to shout out a couple titles and authors that we sure. should follow up? Uh, I would say uh, the one that's on my mind a lot these days, but it'd be a demanding book. Oh, I'll say straight up is Jan or J-O-N Fosse who is a Norwegian playwright and novelist who has recently completed a, uh, a trilogy of beautiful but difficult novels about an aging painter living in a remote Norwegian village who is drawn basically to God through the opening of John's gospel. Hmm. And he, he just, he kind of is in the best sense stuck on the opening lines of John's gospel and thinks about them in terms of his family life, in terms of his work as an artist. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, but, but I will say difficult. Uh, a more reliably enjoyable book, perhaps unexpectedly, is Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen. Ah. Jonathan Franzen is a major contemporary American novelist, perhaps the most prominent of his generation. He is definitely not an active religious believer. But I would be hard-pressed to find a contemporary writer who more generously represented faith and family life than Franzen does in his new novel, which is about a Lutheran minister and his family in early 1970s suburban Illinois, suburban Chicago. And basically, the multi-part crack-up of their lives, all kind of anchored around a youth fellowship group at their local church. And I kept waiting, Karen, the entire novel for him to go, see, this is what's wrong with organized religion. See, this is how craven and hypocritical they all are. See, and no, he doesn't do it. He grants the sincerity of belief while also pointing out all the mistakes and problems and manipulations that can still happen, of course, amongst fallen human beings in any context. But he never pulls back and winks at us that we know better. He grants the validity of religious experience, amongst many other sub-religious experiences in the novel. And I found that not only engaging and surprising, but even at times moving. 
Hmm. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I I have read Franson. I have not read that, so I will take a look. Yeah, I recommend it very strongly. Randy, I have this thing. I'm actually better at this now, but I used to be quite hard on people who don't read. Like I would, you know, in dinner conversation Mm. or whatever, like, well, what are you reading? Well, I don't really read. And I would be like, I have nothing to say to you. (laughs) What are, whatever, what are we going to talk about now? So I wondered, well, I guess two things as we wrap up, what is your wonderful encouragement to people who may have left reading behind, even during COVID, maybe it's just got easier to sit in front of Netflix or whatever. And, sure. and someone who just maybe hasn't embraced it yet, just the power of reading in our lives of faith in particular. Well, you know, we are, along with brethren in, in, uh, in, the, in a couple of other traditions, we are, the pe- we are people of the book. And if you think first, in a theological sense, one of our core beliefs is that the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. So you should read the word. You should read many words. So if you need a religious argument, I think that would be it. Uh, If you need a human argument, it would be this. Could you imagine, Karen, how unsatisfying my description of my day to you would be? If you asked me how I spent my day and I told you how many calories I consumed, how many calories I burned, and how many steps I took. Think about how banal and unsatisfying an account of the human person's activity that would be. Yeah, a little boring. But if you ask me about my yeah, absolutely. Whereas if you ask me about my day, I'm going to tell you a story Yes. about waking up this morning, the limited chaos of getting four children out the door for work with a new puppy running around for school. I mean, with a new puppy running around, et cetera, et cetera. I'll tell you a story that'll have ups and downs, things that are expected, things that are unexpected, that has resolution. We are, as Paul Ricoeur, the, the late French philosopher suggested, we are at base storytelling creatures. We understand ourselves in narrative terms. And so if you are willing to agree, I say to our listeners, that you are a storytelling creature, that what you respond most fully to are the stories of other people, you'll find those in the most, I think, efficacious form, in the healthiest form, on, on the page, in books. Because you can abide in them. You can abide in someone else's life. I love movies. I love prestige television, but it overwhelms you, right? It, it commands your imagination. Whereas a book proposes an arrangement of people, of places, of events, and then your imagination is activated and has to make sense of it. And there is no experience like that otherwise. So yes, read books. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.